Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vector, where we discuss topics, trends, and insights shaping the global space ecosystem. I am your host, Kelly Kitas-Ogborn, and today I am joined by Clay Mari, who is the Chief Revenue Officer at Voyager Space. Clay has over 30 years of experience in the commercial launch and satellite sectors, spanning roles in the U.S. government, industry trade associations, and for leading commercial space companies. Some notable positions include founding executive director at the Satellite Industry Association, a space industry analyst, trade negotiator, and senior international trade specialist with the U.S. Department of Commerce's International Trade Administration, president and chairman of Ariane Space, as well as VP for Global Sales at Blue Origin. Now at Voyager Space, he is responsible for growing sales, aligning company product and service offerings, developing analytics, setting strategy, and delivering customer success. In addition to his work at Voyager, he is also the president of the International Astronautical Federation, also known as IAF, the world's largest international space organization representing 468 members from 75 countries, and he also serves on the advisory board of Via Satellite Magazine, on the selection board of the Carmen Project, as a Brooke Owens Fellowship Mentor, and he is the founder and chairman emeritus of the uh, Future Space Leaders Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to career development of the next generation space and satellite industry professionals. Clay, thank you for joining me today. And my first question for you is, how do you sleep? Yeah, in my spare time, I rescue kittens from trees. So uh, yeah. I imagine, I believe it. <laughs> um, well, I have so been looking forward to this conversation, um, especially because as we talk about the future of space, and it's it's probably the number one topic on everyone's minds, you know, um, business opportunities in low Earth orbit are really heating up. And, you know, today we're really going to dive into commercial LEO destinations, CLDs, which are more commonly known as commercial space stations. And you are the perfect person to come on and, and give us your breadth of experience. So, um Starting off, because you know you and I live and breathe in this space, but could you give us sort of a rundown about what are commercial space stations and how are they really integrating and taking on the work of the ISS and moving into the future? Sure, and, th and thanks for having me uh, on this uh, on this uh, program. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe just a little bit of history to start, right? So we have a an international space station, the ISS, that's in low Earth orbit today. Uh, it's up there. It's been operating now for uh, operational for over 20 years, which is mm -hmm. amazing. It's um, it's really this inter amazing international partnership that was put together um, with uh, with uh, Russia, with Europe, with Canada and Japan. Um, and it's a hundred billion dollar complex up there. It's bigger than a football field uh, floating around. And they do a lot of work up there, a lot of research and other work up there. But it, it's getting old. Right? It's been up there for a long time. Uh, and all these uh, partners that are involved in it have made uh, a plan to extend it to 2030. But then after that, if you can imagine something that's been up in space in the harsh environment, heating, cooling, orbiting micrometeorites that might be pelting this thing with little debris, um, it's going to need to be retired. And so the decision that NASA has made is by 2030, they're going to retire the space station. Uh, they're working on a plan now to figure out how to bring that down safely, which is important. Um, but now they need a replacement for this space station that's been up there. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to do this commercially. And so about a decade ago, a guy named Phil McAllister, who works at NASA, uh, uh, he 
had this idea of trying to bring more commercial uh, entities into the uh, owning and operating uh, of systems that could provide service to NASA. So really commercializing some of the things where NASA built and operated, designed, built, and operated those systems, like the space station. They were the prime contractor, if you will, right, for putting that together, working, of course, and this goes all the way back to the Apollo era, where NASA's always worked with contractors, big space companies, and back in the day it was, um, you know, companies that are now been merged into some of the bigger companies we have now, but companies like Rockwell, right, and and, uh, Grumman Corporation, which is now Northrop Grumman, and, and others that did these things, but kind of behind the scenes, right? You didn't really know back in the day who was the company that stood behind the, the, the NASA system, whether it was the Saturn V moon rocket or the space shuttle or the Skylab uh, commercial space station that flew. Uh, so what we're trying to do now is, um, or what Phil, I should say, Phil McAllister has been successful over the last 10 years, is figuring out how NASA can buy space capabilities as a service, right? So it's a, it's a different approach. It started with cargo delivery, Right, to supply the astronauts on board the International Space Station today. So it was a simple thing where they said, we're going to put out an RFP. We're going to help a couple of American companies. Uh, originally, it was two. Now it's three uh, to start to build, design and build cargo systems that could visit the space station, bring up supplies. Um, and then eventually they took the cargo model and made it for astronaut missions. Right. So now what you have is SpaceX, which was one of the two, original two award winners and Northrop Grumman. Uh, with their Cygnus supply system. So SpaceX Dragon, Northrop Grumman Cygnus system, they were doing cargo. Then Sierra Nevada came in with their Dream Chaser cargo system, their Colorado-based company. So now you have three companies that are under contract with NASA to basically provide those cargo systems. And then they took that and they took it to the astronaut level. So now we've seen astronauts flying uh, on the Dragon system, right? And those kind of cool, fun spacesuits that, that SpaceX has. And they've been flying missions, both traditional astronauts that we know of for space agencies, as well as commercial astronauts. Um, and now Boeing is the second awardee in that with their Dreamliner, uh, uh, not just not Dreamliner, Starliner. Dreamliner is the plane, Starliner is the capsule. Starliner system, sorry, Boeing, didn't mean to confuse that. Uh, the Starliner system, also called CST-100. And they're going to be operational uh, this year at some point. They're, they're waiting to do their first test flight. So what you've got now is NASA buying those services from commercial companies that own and operate those systems. And NASA can then focus on doing the hard stuff, right? Doing the exploration, missions to the moon and Mars, doing exquisite uh, systems like the James Webb Space Telescope, that's like a time machine. And then they can leave the more operational piece to commercial companies. And so that's exactly what they're trying to do with these, what you said, uh, commercial space stations, the CLDs, the commercial yeah. destinations, also called commercial destination free flyer for all yeah. you <laughs> out there. Um, so that's what exactly what they're trying to do. So there were uh, in December of 2021, there were three companies that were awarded contracts to design space stations. Uh, they were actually uh, technically called Space Act agreements, right, which is a little bit more of a flexible way for NASA to contract with commercial companies. It gives us a little bit more flexibility in terms of how we do our work. Um, so there's less of that government, heavy government contracting uh, piece. Not to say that there's there's milestones and oversight. I don't want to give any impression that there isn't, but we're also given a lot more flexibility in terms of how our approach is. So three companies awarded Voyager uh, and our subsidiary Nanorax. It's one of our operating companies. Mm-hmm. Won the largest of those three awards, $160 million, which is a lot of money, but not nearly enough money 
right? To actually go out and field a space station. Yeah, and build yeah. it, infrastructure and everything. So we've got now kind of a two-year window that we're doing the design work. Um, we've partnered uh, with actually with Airbus uh, to help us on that design and engineering piece of that. And uh, Airbus, people know from the aircraft side that they have a very uh, mature space division. They built um, the European Columbus module that flies today on the ISS. So they've got a lot of background in that area. They're a super great partner with us and give us some connectivity right back to the Europeans who really we want and they want to utilize a commercial space station going forward for their research. So it allows us to create in some ways uh, uh, in a commercial sense, kind of what we have today in orbit uh, with the space station. So That's a great um, starting point. And, the, uh, you know, NASA and the other folks in the U.S. government that that, that uh, are, look oversee all these programs, they're excited that we're going to be bringing in Europe and we're trying to build similar partnerships with other nations uh, of the world, like-minded nations, allied nations that want to yeah. do research in orbit. So, so that's our model right now. We've got about two years to complete that design. We have milestones uh, with NASA that we're achieving. Uh, we have a big significant one coming up um, this month with them on one of our uh, uh, reviews with them on, on our progress to actually do the design work. And then once that design work is done, the idea is that NASA ultimately will select two companies Mm -hmm. buy commercial space stations, uh, put them in orbit. And NASA work then will shift to certifying those space stations so that NASA astronauts, uh, U.S. government employees, right, NASA professional astronauts can fly on that station and they certify it for, for basically for, for crew safety, right, that they're up yeah. there, you know, it's certified. And then they'll start contracting, much like they did with cargo and crew, for about three years in advance of the astronaut mission, mm -hmm. they start buying those services from us. And that, by the way, is a very uh, traditional commercial approach, right? So I used to be in the launch business. I sold a lot of rocket launches. Yeah. Where you're building a rocket and then you're putting the payload on the rocket and flying it to space. And the way those contracts work is about two to three years out, depending on the mission, you start building the rocket and you start doing all the payload work and all the engineering work to integrate the payload of the rocket. And then by the time you get to the launch, it's paid for and you fly them into space and everything's good. So it's very similar to that commercial construct mm -hmm. uh, where a contracting entity, a service provider would be building all the capability up and then doing the mission and executing the mission. So that's, that's really how it works. And, and it's really a, an innovative approach for space station. The yeah. difference is now we own and operate it um, and NASA buys that as a service. And, and, and so will the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency. Space Agency is all around the world, by the way. It's not just the ones traditionally that have flown on the ISS. Um, uh, you know, last week there was a, a, a mission where, for instance, Saudi Arabia had flown astronauts to the ISS um, and, and, and returned them to Earth. And so there's lots of other space agencies in the world that are aspiring, that are developing, yeah. that want to field human capability in space. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're interested in, in broadening that market to uh, those space agencies and then to commercial users as well. Yeah, the, the aperture that it's going to open is tremendous because, you know, right now there's over 90 countries operating in space. And it's um, and I think you made a really important distinction that I actually don't often hear in the conversation about space stations is that the collaboration between commercial space and NASA is nothing different. It's just the business model. Right. Because because you're right, like commercial companies have been involved from the beginning, but it was so vertically integrated. You didn't actually know who was responsible for the parts and components because it was one entity. And so it's not like we're doing something 
dramatically new. It's just the way that the operator and the way the money is exchanged, right? And I think that's an important distinction point. Um, I have a lot of questions for you because you set such a phenomenal stage. And I want to start first at sort of the development and regulatory environment necessary to get these commercial space stations operational. And then I do want to shift what's actually going to be done on board and how companies can start to think about, you know, their place and what kind of business opportunities it's going to open up. So on my first question, um, on the operational side, so obviously there are pretty in-depth uh, technical development timelines to get the the plans down and, and the design down, but what else needs to be done? Like, are there any policies that need to be put in place, any different regulations, because this is going to open up a totally different ballgame about cadence of launch, operations in space, who actually has access to space. So I'm curious from your perspective, what that landscape looks like. Uh, yeah, it's a big question, by the way. So that it's, it's, it's complicated, right? Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. Never yeah. easy if it's, if it's worth doing. If it's worth doing, it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So to, again, let me start a little bit with the history and I can talk about kind of what's yeah. going forward. So the, today, the International Space Station operates something called the Intergovernmental Agreement, the IGA, which they put in place uh, about 23, 24 years ago, if I, if I do the math right, maybe 25 years ago. And they had to put that in place before they could actually bring all these partners into it. And so it's there. You can actually Google it. Anybody who's watching today, you can Google this IGA, you can read it. And, and really, it talks about responsibilities and uh, there's like cross waivers and liability and all these things where you're flying different astronauts on a, on a, on a government-owned platform. And what does it mean? Um, and how do you govern that? And how do you do exchanges, right? So there's a lot of barter arrangements that take place between space agencies today where they'll bring some kind of contribution to the space station or another program. And NASA in kind will then fly their astronauts in, in exchange for that. Um, so that's a very much a government-to-government -government cooperation kind of agreement. And there's a, a piece of it that is really geared to um, what I'd say is, in, you know, you get into, you can't do anything, right? You can't drive your car without having insurance. And so yeah. you need insurance, you need protection against anything going wrong. Space is a really challenging environment, as we know. Um, anybody who's seen any of the Hollywood movies, uh, Apollo 13 or uh, uh, Gravity or others, you can know that it's a tough environment and things yeah. can go wrong. And we have to be careful about, um, about how we operate. Um, there's a whole set of rules around what they call visiting vehicle requirements, right? Mm -hmm. Close proximity operations when one of these cargo systems or crude systems approaches the space station and docks. So you now you have to think about that in different terms. If the space station is not owned by the government anymore, now it's owned by a private contractor. What does that mean? What yeah. if you had an accident? What if, if something bumped into it? What if somebody got sick up there? Uh, not by any other thing, but just whatever. They, they have some medical emergency. How do you get them down? What does it mean? Um, and how do we ensure the capability that's up in orbit? And so NASA understands that is a, a big issue, right, going forward, that we have to transition from this IGA now, which is governments uh, to government agreement, where some of that's self-insured and some of it's under these, what I said, cross waiver, liability waivers that exist. And we need to take that into a commercial world. And so there's work that needs to be done. We have a little bit of time. You know, it's going to be four, five, six years before some of these commercial stations are up and operational before the end of the goal is by the end of the decade, but we have some work to do around some of those. Um, I'm actually speaking at a conference in London next week to raise some of these topics um, with the insurance community that's, um, that's yeah. thinking it's already. So uh, there, there are a whole set of uh, uh, laws, policies, regulations from uh, uh, 
um, the Outer Space Treaty mm-hmm. to the there's a Commercial Space Launch Act that has indemnification for the launching state. So on the way up, there's a whole regime, and on the way down for reentry. What 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 we don't have in place is okay. Now you're operating in space, which is a little bit like being in the middle of the high seas. Similarity mm-hmm. right? to um, to the law of the sea in some places, space law mirrors sometimes the law of the sea. And, and how do you do the operations now, the operational piece? And and uh, that that's not as clear, let's say that piece of it. And what do we need to put in place to make sure that we can we can fly astronauts from around the world, that we can do it safely, that they understand what um, what's involved in that and how we how we create a uh, um, uh, let's say a commercial environment around that with working with governments, which, by the way, it's a little different for me. As opposed to NASA talking to the European Space Agency mm-hmm. or NASA talking to the Canadian Space Agency, now they're talking to a company and not a Canadian company or European company in some cases, although Airbus is helping us with ESA, they're talking to an American company really at the heart of this. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit different relationship, right? Yeah. And, and, and we're still working through how do we, how do we have those conversations we, and we fully inform obviously the NASA and the US government, but they're not as uh, used to working with that. They're used to working in this government to government context. Yeah, when I'm glad you said the law of the sea because when you were talking about the environment, the the main thing that kept coming up in my mind is like pirate law, right? Because because we are entering this environment where it is going to be like the wild wild west in certain ways. Because what I find fascinating about the space environment that's going to be in the future is that I have no doubts that technologically we'll get there. It's all the other stuff, right? It's the it's the interaction, it's the business uh, business exchanges, it's the regulations, it's the laws, it's all that fuzzy human stuff, right? That is going to be critical to sustain the technology will get us there. It's just the operational relationship piece. You've taken a page out of the Matt Damon in Martian, right? Where he's like, I'm yeah. a space pirate. Yeah. yeah. It's but there is, there, We don't have rampant piracy in space. Just so all the viewers know. We, we don't no. expect anybody, no boarding parties or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. But pirate law in the sense of it's, you know, it's kind of fluid at the moment. We're figuring it out. And, and in terms of the, um, the Outer Space Treaty, I think what's interesting about that is, you know, that talks very much to the peaceful interaction and cooperation, but it doesn't actually talk about property rights in space. And I think we're going to get into a really fascinating situation because you're going to have government projects, purely commercial projects operating in the same space um, and the regulation and, and just everything around that. I That's an area that I'm really closely watching. Yeah, I think, but and it's not just for commercial Leo space stations, right? Yeah. It, it's for the moon. It's for Mars. It's for all these things um, where where you're using. Uh, and and by the way, just generally, and and take a, put on my IF hat for a second. I mean, sustainability in space for operations, the ability for multiple actors to 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 cooperate and work in space in a cooperative way, and and that that's everything from what orbits are you in to what frequencies are you using that you don't step on each other and interfere with the transmission of signals that could be, you know, uh, human safety at the end of the day um, to um, best practices, norms of operating in space. All of these things are important as we um, see a huge growth in the number of spacecraft in orbit and operating uh, together. And by the way, we're excited about those, about, you know, Starlink and Kuiper and OneWeb because it gives us a, a huge amount of bandwidth. Now we can operate the space station in a much different way. Starlab can now, leverage those systems that are in orbit. And now we have a, an amazing amount of bandwidth, right, to operate. So it changes everything you think about um, in terms of the computing power we need on board, 
doing edge computing, uh, uh, using artificial intelligence in orbit to help with certain aspects, and then how we operate experiments on board and get the data, the ones and zeros that are digital, yeah. down from space to the ground so that people can interpret that data and, and then make decisions based on it. So the, the, we're really excited about those systems because it should really lower our operating costs today. It's all done through a, a, a government program called the Tracking and Data Relay Satellite, the TDRIS system, right? Yeah. And so th- this is how we connect today to the International Space Station, but it's a limited amount of bandwidth, right, to, to provide. So now we're going to have, we think, a huge amount of bandwidth and much, uh, and these are low Earth orbit systems, so the, 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 the delay or the latency from getting from the space station to low Earth orbit back down to Earth is very small as mm-hmm. opposed to going all the way up to geostationary orbit, which is 22,300 miles away, and then back to the ground, then you have a half second delay. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a really different way to think about how you operate a space station, how you operate payloads in orbit, and, and the cost of doing that as well will go way down. So staying on this operational theme, what kind of activities are going to be conducted on board? Because I know that these commercial space stations are going to take on a lot of the the NASA research that's done on the ISS, but I've also heard that you know companies can can rent a space and, and rent certain equipment. And so, what actually does that business model look like, both from the government customer and then the other commercial customers? Sure, it's it's a multi tiered uh, business model. I think all the all the commercial space stations are looking at this and trying to figure out how do you build uh, a sustainable. Uh, economic system mm-hmm. around these commercial space stations. So I think you start with the, the the what I call professional astronauts, right, or government astronauts that are the traditional astronauts that are um, uh, they're up there doing a lot of government funded research and development work on space stations. So we have the ISS National Lab, formerly known as CASIS, mm-hmm. um, that provides a lot of payloads today on the ISS that want to utilize commercial space stations, and the governments will continue to fund that through universities, right? So there's a whole university system here in the United States. Um, uh, under a space grant uh, a program that does a lot of fundamental research and development work through the ISS National Lab and through NASA that then will continue on board with these commercial space stations. Um, and so that's important to keep doing that. Now, you also want to open up uh, this as a research platform to more commercial users. Yeah. And so um, our approach uh, with Star Lab, and we have a Another organization we've developed um, called the George Washington Carver Science Park, and, okay. and the George Washington Carver, named after the the famous uh, inventor and and scientist George Washington Carver. Um, we've partnered with Ohio State University, but it's not just limited to Ohio State. But they've been super to work with in helping us to set up uh, a terrestrial laboratory uh, in uh, near their campus in Columbus, Ohio, um, that we'll use as a as a, a an analog, uh, basically a replica model here on Earth. Interesting, yeah. Research here on Earth, and then we'll replicate that starting on the space station today because we operate on board there. We have a Bishop airlock that's on board the space station and all kinds of other facilities through Nanorax, one of our uh, seven operating companies at Voyager. So we can we can just do that work today. And by the way, we can work with our partner Airbus on their Bartolomeo platform as well to do research up there. Uh, and then we can replicate that on the ground, and then we can bring that into orbit once Star Lab is on orbit after we, we prove those technologies on the ISS and on, on the ground. So that's another piece of that model. We'd like to also bring in and attract new industries, new actors that haven't used space before because they don't know how or it's complicated. Yeah. It's very um, non-traditional. So if you're a pharmaceutical company or 
you're doing material sciences work. You say, let's say you make, there's a huge amount of money now flowing into US uh, uh, computer chip manufacturing, right? This has been a huge issue in Washington and um, Congress and the administration are focused on trying to make sure that we have uh, high speed computing uh, power um, built and made in the United States, right? This is a national security issue. It's also an industrial base issue. There's a lot of things we can do with computer chip manufacturing in orbit, right? We can build chips in a microgravity research, in a zero gravity microgravity is, is, is a little bit the term of art we use. So um, in, that, in that, um, uh, that environment, you can build chips much more precisely yeah. that from a, a property standpoint are super efficient, which means they don't use as much energy. You know, everybody's got a fan on their computer, right? To keep it cool. We all know that when you, you go in the back of the computer, racks and there's always this yeah. super cold room right that you know the thermal piece of that the temperature piece is huge and if you can create really efficient chips in space build those in space and get them back to the earth you can now apply those in a lot of places where heat and heat the ability to keep that efficient and cool it's a huge advantage right in terms of of how we build systems to operate and so that's one example i could give you uh there's other examples in pharmaceutical and other areas material sciences so there's a lot of things you can do with that uh, on these commercial platforms, not only building those and, and operating them on those platforms, but using some of these um, supply systems that I mentioned before, like the Cygnus system from Northrop Grumman. Yeah. Japan has a, a system called HTV. And, and what you can imagine is these are vehicles that bring up cargo and propellants and things to the space station. They attach to the space station. So you could bring that up. You can have an astronaut go inside, set up a manufacturing thing, you know, whatever the uh, uh, property or um, product you're trying to produce, you can unattach from the space station so that these systems free fly, let's say in, in parallel, you can do all that work. And so if it's something that there's vibration or other, you know, byproducts that you don't want to expose the astronauts to or the experiments to, you can do that. When the process of manufacturing is over, you bring it back, you offload the final product, and then you bring it down in one of these like a crude dragon or a, a, um, the CST 100 that Boeing's building or the dream chaser. So we can bring that back down to earth and then take those products to market. So there's a lot of things we can do on board these space stations. And then let me say, there's one other piece of this, which is popularly called space tourism. Yeah. Think about rich people flying to space, but it's, it's a lot more than that. And, and I could talk for hours about that. Cause I, I ran the uh, sales at, program. At Blue Origin. Yeah. Yeah around that. So I'll tell you this, that every, every one of these uh, individuals I've talked to, and, it, it, and by the way, uh, my, my, uh, our CEO here, Dylan Taylor, who flew on New Shepard, he also actually is giving back by flying people that, that don't have the means, right, to buy that ticket. So he's, he's flown now and is sponsoring through uh, his Space for Humanity organization for people, young people, people without the means to fly to space, to give them that same experience to fly. That's amazing. Do, do experiments, have that overview effect. And so trying to open up space, right? Just beyond just uh, wealthy individuals that can fly, that have the means to fly. So th there's a piece of that, but every single one of these people I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of them, probably over a hundred of them, they all want to do this, not just to have that experience, but actually to do some science and research. Yeah. They want to fly with sensors so that we understand more the physiological aspects of flying in space and what it means. They want to fly and do some research, whether that's something that they can operationalize, like uh, there, there's programs with things where you can get it in microgravity, uh, operate something in space, and then immediately get those results back to Earth. Um, so what we call human tended payloads. Mm -hmm. They all want to do that because they want to do more than just 
go up and look out of the window. And so I think that's important for people, viewers, to, 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 to understand that we're at the front end of that in everything, whether it was cars, planes, trains. When you started with that, it wasn't something that was open to every um, every uh, uh, person in, in society, right? It, there's an expense. It, companies have to recover their costs to operate those systems, uh, to develop those systems. And so you start at a higher price point and you move down the scale. And so we have to start somewhere. Yeah. But all of this is we're doing these technologies development, all that research and development, um, everything, you know, and, and I don't want to use the, the common things that people talk about that came from the space room. There's a lot of really important things like microprocessors mm-hmm. um, with health, uh, health uh, industry with uh, everyday products that you use from airbags in your car to things that have a positive impact on life in, uh, here on Earth. And, and it's important to know that what we're doing there really does benefit life on Earth yeah. on a daily basis. Most people just don't don't understand that that product or capability came from the space program. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's it's a lot more than that. I know we get caught up in this narrative of you know billionaires competing Elon versus Jeff Bezos and and, and what does that mean? It's a lot more than that. It takes a long, it's a lot harder to explain it in just a soundbite, but it's important to know that that's why we're going to space. I, I was just um, in India a couple of weeks ago meeting with the Indian Space Research Organization, which is their equivalent to NASA. And they are right now, they have a very advanced program. They're developing a human space capability. They do a lot of research in orbit. They have communication satellites and launch vehicles. India, right? So this is yeah. India where they have a lot of problems on the ground. We all have problems on Earth, but they still want to have programs that advance technology, science, research. They still want to have programs that empower young engineers, right? People to study and do that kind of STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math education work. And so you, you need to do both really is the yeah. always the answer I say. When people want to make it an either or question, and this goes back to the Apollo era, right? Um, you need to be able to do both. And we don't spend a lot on space, but we need to be able to continue this effort. We want, America wants to be uh, uh, operational with a space station, not just today, but going forward. We need that capability. That's going to drive our innovation and technology here on, on, on Earth. Oh, yeah. And the duality that you touched on, I think, is critical because space is always this great North Star. It's aspirational. It's inspirational. But beyond the, you know, just the pure tech transfer aspects, like 95% of the space economy is the space to earth market. So it's tech transfer, it's utilizing space-based data. And what I always tell people, because I get asked all the time about the billionaire space race, and I, I sort of push back pretty hard, but I remind them that, you know, even just trying to go to space because space is hard, you're going to get better processes, better technologies, better ways of understanding things, or even just understanding the baseline of what is technologically possible now to then, you know, re-vector timelines and others on when it will be possible. So the learning piece is vast. Um, and a lot of people just, you're right, they get caught up in that narrative. And we actually are getting a lot of really good questions from the chat. So I have one final question for you, and then I want to pause it over to the audience. So speaking about this next generation, and I think you you set that up really well with talking about ISRO and, and all of these new companies that are coming online, because what I find so fascinating and really exciting about commercial space stations is for years, there's been companies that have been figuring out how to be part of space. But now the, the script has almost been flipped in a way of them understanding how space can serve them. So whether through new research techniques, like you said, or or space tourism, but being able to do, um, you know, projects and other things that they might not have access to, um, what kind of skill sets or 
capabilities do you see being relevant to the growth of commercial space stations? So we know what space can do, but where should people start to think about? Do you mean from a, a, a human resources standpoint or actual technologies themselves? I would say both because there's people that are thinking about, okay, well, how can I contribute? But I would also say that, you know, what kind of um, technological abilities, like there's lots of talk, you know, about in, in, in orbit service and manufacturing. So when you have these commercial space stations, there's robotics, there's AI, just thinking about these future technical capabilities that could get people excited to think that there's a place for them in space. Yeah. And let me just say that, um, you know, I've been working in space for 30 years. I'm not an engineer. Um, I know a heck of a lot about how things work in space. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I basically was uh, uh, marketing uh, and selling rocket launches for a long time. So I, I know a lot about orbits and things. It, you, you know, it's important, you know, engineering certainly helps, right? But it's taken me a good, you know, couple of decades to, to be uh, proficient in this, but you don't have to be. I always tell people when I mentor, you don't have to be an engineer to I'm succeed. I'm a sociologist. Yeah. Yeah. So my background, uh, I studied political science and then economics, and I have an, a master's in business administration. Mm -hmm. And if you're curious and you're willing to learn and you're willing to dig in on the technology side, th there's a place for you in, in the space world where, where it's mm -hmm. not technical. Um, and so uh, that, that's one piece I'd like to say. We, we, it's, it's, it's an exciting industry to look at going forward. And there's a tremendous amount of interest coming out now. I, I, I kind of, it's like space 2.0. I, I wasn't, I was a very, very young boy in the Apollo era. So, you know, um, uh, you know, I wasn't there to experience that excitement, but I've been working in space for 30 years now. This is absolutely the most exciting time yeah. in space, you know, but by, by a long shot. And I work a lot with young people, uh, young space professionals, students um, that are making their way in this. Um, and uh, they're all excited about it. They all want to go to space. They've grown up watching uh, all these movies, you know, uh, uh, about Neil Armstrong yeah. and, the, the, you know, uh, the space race and the right stuff and Apollo 13 and then all the science fiction that goes along with it. And they passionately want to work in this industry. And there's a huge passion uh, to want to go to space. What kind of skill sets do you need for this? Um, certainly, you need to be technically um, inquisitive, right? You, you know, being an engineer helps. Certainly, there's a lot of needs for um, software engineers that that um, want to work in this sector. Electrical engineers, what we call double E's, right, in the business, mm -hmm. and then aerospace engineers as well. Um, th 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 there's uh, and and by the way, I, there are plenty of mechanical engineers and other kind of engineers that you run into as well. So, um, what do we what do we need to focus on? We need to focus on how do we live and work in space. Yeah, these are really the areas I think going forward. You mentioned a few key things. Robotics are huge. Um, how do we do um, computing and communications in space? Laser technology uh, it comes into play here now in terms of data uh, transfer, either from in space communications or getting information from the moon and the lunar surface, or from platforms in orbit back down to Earth. Our ability to communicate given the vast distance. That's up there. These are areas where we need to get a lot better, a lot smarter. Um, uh, artificial intelligence, edge computing, cloud computing will all come into play up there. So there's a lot of room for growth in that sector as well. And then when you get into the actual technical, you know, you'll read a lot if you read any of our trade publications or if you, you look at some of the issues around these landing systems they're developing. Fluid transfer, cryogenics, how do you, with the chemistry of how you work up there. How do you keep propellants cool to be able to achieve these things? This is a really big one, right? So a lot of focus in the last few years on, on propulsion technology in space. Um, 
of uh, what we call orbital transfer vehicles, OTVs. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot of discussion around. I always just call them space tugs. The last, you know, the last mile. Yeah, the last mile question. And I always yeah. say that the answer to every tough question in space is uh, is these transfer vehicles, yeah. these space tugs up there. How do you do that? How do we operate um, in space? So um, we're getting a lot better at those things I mentioned earlier, the close proximity operations. How do you dock? We have a company here in Denver, uh, the Denver area, that's developing magnet systems. So not a mechanical interface, but a magnetic interface to dock systems together, much cleaner, much simpler, much yeah. easier, and can hold a lot of capability together. So there's a lot of really interesting tech that's coming along, um, like electro-permanent magnets, that, that can really simplify how we operate in space. And so this is really, I think, the next, the next frontier is learning how to work in space, um, how do we get better at, uh, at doing that? And then, you know, you drilled into some of these other areas of how do we use resources in space? How do we manufacture in space? How do we create platforms around that? So there's a lot of work to do. Um, and I think that's going to be the next piece of it. It's not just the transport, you know, the transportation piece was the first. Yeah. How do we get to space cheaper? Reusable rockets are a huge part of that. Um, how do we lower the cost of access to space, get more efficient at space? Um, and then you also mentioned, I think that the, it, it's really about data, right? About 80, 90% of the space economy right now is those ones and zeros I yep. mentioned, right? The ones and zeros, the digital information, that stream from space down to earth. Yep. Now we have to think about space in a much different way about how do we manufacture and build actual physical products and services in space, get those up and down from earth. How do we create a space economy around those resources? And like on the lunar surface and the Martian surface, use the resources that are in place, what we call in situ yep. resource utilization, ISRU. How do we use those resources in space to actually be able to do more there? Because the transportation issue is still in space. Transportation is still uh, an issue. Now they're addressing that with these big landers, rovers, and then going to Mars. Um, but there's a lot of work to do there. I think that's kind of the next frontier in space. I agree. And I think that even beyond a lot of these other applications we're going to start to see and potentially you you might already um a lot of already established industries or companies in what i like to call space adjacent industries that are going to realize a small tweak in their tech has tremendous application to space and so really starting to adopt those best principles best practices over um i agree with you it's it's, a, it's an extremely exciting time and i'm very fortunate to be in the space industry right now because it's every day it's just a creative thought process which is Really fun. Um, if I may transition to some of the questions from the chat, I think we have some good ones. So the first one is, how do you see sustainable launch pad development and potential spaceports coming online in the next five years? The second piece of that is, how does it shift the launch capabilities and space access? Wow. So um, launch pads, good, really good question, right? And I, being a, a former launch guy, I've been to a lot of launch yeah. facilities yeah. around the world. Um, so. Uh, Interesting. And, and by the way, we have in our Voyager family, we have a, a company called The Launch Company, which actually doesn't build rockets, but they focus on the terrestrial pad infrastructure. Right. And so in a lot of these facilities, you've got multiple users that want to use the pad. In fact, it, it, you know, down in Florida, at uh, um, Cape Canaveral uh, Space Force uh, Station and Kennedy Space Center down there, you've got a lot of pads that, that line the coast, but there's still traffic issues about utilizing those pads. Right. And so the old days, you built one pad for one rocket. And now we want multi-user pads. Yeah. Right? So this is a really interesting concept to think about. How do you do that so that um, you can develop a pad infrastructure where you can have one rocket fly one week, and then the next week you can have a different rocket that would fly from that same 
Launchpad. And so we're trying to solve that question. The launch company's got a lot of things uh, that they work on to do that with, uh, uh, you know, quick disconnects and uh, flu- uh, uh, fuel uh, vehicles and vessels that you can interchange and move. And by the way, there's applications for that on Earth, too, right? We think about, you know, deploying jet fighters to someplace you yeah. know, forward or, or landing in a remote region someplace where you, you need to have that capability uh, and be able to transport it um, to the to the kind of to the edge. Um, so there's applications beyond just the launch business. You also see now a proliferation of launch sites around the world, right? Mm-hmm. So the UK is one example. I was just in Norway for a space uh, conference on climate change. They're developing a, a spaceport in northern Norway to be able to do polar missions. Um, we see Australia, other countries around the world that are pushing for launch sites. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, there's a huge move now to give more access to space. You know, New Zealand has a launch site yeah. for rocket launch. So that's really a fun thing to think about. You know, I always I always say that in the old days when I started all this, space was a strategic capability of nation. You know, you know I had like a handful of countries mm-hmm. that were launching and they were all government programs and they were big, huge infrastructure, billion, billion, billion Vertically dollars. integrated. Vertically integrated. Yeah. Now you've got small spaceports that where you can actually put you, you usable, capable systems on these pads, fly them to space um, and get a return on that investment. So. That's a huge piece of that. And again, multi-user, multi-capability. Um, how do we make it a lot simpler to launch, reload, and fly again? I can remember when it used to take weeks at, at uh, Cape Canaveral to redo the radars and the systems on the ground to just fly a different rocket, you know, not let alone one rocket, the same rocket off the same pad. It took weeks to reconfigure the range depending on the mission that they were trying to conduct. Now they're trying to get a, in a pace where they can do 100 200 missions a year uh, out of that facility. And that's a challenge. You really have to think about how you scope. This used to be a, a, an industry where if you did 10 of something, it was a lot. Mm-hmm. Right? We're trying to, now you see SpaceX launching, you know, uh, you know, thousands of satellites yeah. in a year and hundreds of launches. That's where we need to get to. We need to be able to scale the space business, right? To take advantage of those. And, and by the way, as you scale, the price comes down. Yeah. That's really the and important And access part. goes up. That's exactly right. Yeah. Lower cost. Yeah. Next question. So how do you see stations partnering internationally, but also keeping modular international standards? Because Russia and the rest of ISS countries still aren't exactly in the greatest of terms. So this is a geopolitical question. Yeah, the, 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 the geopolitical question um, is interesting. So uh, to, to, to this topic, you know, China now has an operational space station, the mm-hmm. Tiangong, that, that became operational last December. They're up and operating today, um, their, their space station. So there's the ISS plus their space station. Um, we, have, we certainly have some issues today, but you know, right now, space station today continues with Russia on board uh, you know, as a partner, and, and uh, that continues despite the war uh, in Ukraine. Um, but we have to think about tomorrow how that's all going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's really important that not only do from, our, from, our, from a United space perspective, from a U.S. perspective, how do we keep our partners uh, operating in space together and doing that safely. So there are technical, uh, to, the, to the question, there are technical standards and things we want to do here, but also, um, you know, coalitions and uh, um, efforts where we want to bring and keep, and by the way, attract new partners yeah. into that, right? So it shouldn't just be a small club anymore. We want to bring in other countries and nations that are, uh, we, some people call them developing or, uh, you know, aspiring emerging. space. Emerging. Emerging. There's yeah. all kinds of. I, I don't know which, uh, I never know which one to use in what instance, but uh, I should, right? I'm the head of the IF. I, I should have a better 
grip on that, but uh, you know, the, it, the, the nomenclature changes, but um, uh, you know, these uh, emerging space actors, and by the way, again, it's not just nations, it's companies. And so I'm, I'm very careful when I talk about space actors now, I mean both commercial companies yeah. and space agencies, because I'll, I'll ask you the question, who's the largest, uh, who's the largest space actor today in terms of number of satellites in orbit? Ooh. SpaceX. I mean, SpaceX. I was going to say, I was going to say it's not a government. It, it has to be a company. Yeah. They have 4,000 plus satellites in orbit right yeah. now with the Starlink system. So they're, they're by far. And I think I don't, I, I actually have to research this a little bit, but I think OneWeb might be second place, which is they have over 600 spacecraft. That's a lot of spacecraft it operational. I, heard I don't mean total launched over time, but operational, that's a lot of spacecraft to run uh, in orbit. And so again, yeah. it's not just countries, right? We have companies now and companies that want to um, fly commercial astronauts mm -hmm. that want to do manufacturing in space. Um, so that's important that we broaden the partnership, that we're able to attract those folks. And again, to the question is standards, interfaces, docking mechanisms, safety protocols and regimes and liability. Those all, you, you can't achieve that without those in place, right? You have to have a certain set of common standards, interfaces, uh, uh, docking mechanisms, all those things go to interoperability on platforms. Yeah. What, what's interesting about your satellite question is I read a statistic recently and I'm paraphrasing it, but I believe that between like 1959 and 2020, there were about 2,500 satellites in orbit. And between 2020 and 2022, we doubled it to 5,000. And I know that SpaceX was a huge component of that. In the next 10 years, they think we might get to a hundred thousand. So the exponential growth, um, is, is tremendous. And last question, and this is a fun one that we're going to, we're going to leave on, but how do you see space travel in the next 20 years? Wow. So, uh, I was super fortunate, right. In my career to watch the, the, this commercial, uh, uh, market open up, right, For, for, uh, both, uh, suborbital flights, mm -hmm. what I was involved with, with you Shepard, what, what Virgin has been doing. And then, um, you know, some of these other systems that are now going to orbital, uh, uh, even contemplating missions around the moon, but missions to the space station. So that's been just a revelation to me to watch that happen in, in front of me and actually know the people that are flying yeah. and, and get to know them and see their aspirations and their lifelong dream fulfilled to go to space and then come back and share that, right? And, and then try to empower other people to fly and have that similar. It was a really small club, right? There's still less than a thousand people, actually less than 800 people but that have ever been above yeah. the Carmen line, right? So- 62 miles or 100 kilometers, the Carmen line is the more or less the unofficial boundary of space that's up there now. Uh, um, and so that's a pretty small club, right? And now we see that club uh, really opening up. Um, and uh, that to me has been the funnest part of my entire career is watching and, and, and literally hugging the people after they went to space and like the, 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 the exhilaration how they want to share. Anybody wants to see Bill Shatner after he flew on New Shepard yeah. and not cry? Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. That I think everyone had a tears in their eyes when they were getting his interview like fresh off the New Shepard. It was amazing. Yep. Oh. So that's the super fun part. Um, I'm super excited to have played a small role in that. Uh, depending on the kind of the uh, the front, you know, the, the front stage of that thing and watching it happen, getting a front row seat. Uh, that was really exciting. I think you're going to see a lot more of that, I think exponentially. Yeah. And we want to see that, right? There's, there's a little bit of like something lost, but I always tell people 
when you think about pilots, for instance, right, you can fly a Cessna or you can fly an F-18. Yeah. Right. So and we think about those pilots in a very different way. Right. One is professionally trained, you know, you know, fighter pilot. We all just saw the the reboot of Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Super. Those pilots are thought of very differently than somebody who's flying a Cessna. Right. So it's going to have that distinction to it going forward. And, and there's a little bit of the losing a little bit of the mystique of the astronaut, but I don't see that at all. I mean, it's just getting comfortable with yeah. having now different types of astronauts, right? There was a lot of protection originally around, oh, we want to, who can be called an astronaut? And or they the wings and the, yeah. Let's get past that because really, if you're in that, in the, and again, the club is still pretty small, but even if it's, you know, thousands of people, that's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. I always told people they, they were in this billionaire space race thing. Imagine Jeff Bezos got on the first human flight of that vehicle and brought his brother. Do you imagine what his mom was thinking? Oh, right? I'm sure she was scared. The 15 minutes of terror, right? Like watching her two sons. It's still pretty brave. You're getting on a rocket. You're going several times the speed of sound. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's a brave experiment. And, 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 and uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, it's exciting. Right. And just to be around, I got to train as a new Shepard astronaut mm. and I got to stand on a launch tower with a fully fueled rocket. I can tell you my heart was racing. Right. It, it's it's a different experience to stand next to something like that um, than it is to watch it on television. You know, I always get a lump in my throat when I see human spaceflight because I know what those people are going to experience and what what's involved in that and the science behind it and the complex set of systems that have to operate perfectly to make that mission a success. So it's still, we are still in the pioneering era of this, mm-hmm. right? There's a little bit of the barnstorming going on now, but we're going to get there. I think in my lifetime, in the next 20 years, we're going to see a transformation, right? That's going to open up access to space. And that's a good thing. I hope you do a lot of motivational speaking around space because I'm leaving this conversation just so enthused about what the future has to offer. And, and I think that... Um, the main theme that I'm getting from a takeaway from, you know, human spaceflight travel, suborbital travel to even these commercial space stations is that so many more people are going to be able to have and claim their heritage in space and be able to take advantage of it or feel connected to it in a different way beyond just watching sci-fi movies. And I think that's something that everyone can get behind. That's that's super. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Appreciate that. Well, Clay, thank you so much. We could go on for, you know, probably another hour or so, but I really do appreciate you sharing your time and expertise with us. This has been a, a phenomenal 50 minutes and I know it just flew by and I'm, I'm sure our audience got a lot out of it too, considering the questions that came in. And I want to thank you again. Sure. My pleasure. Really. Thanks. Be happy to come back again. Have a, another conversation. We actually should probably in a year to see how the landscape has shifted because I'm sure it will. Um, So thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you for joining and stay tuned for future Vector Conversations. Take care.